Hello, I'm Josh Sobalski. I'm excited to bring to you my debut novel, Second Story Work. It was released September 28, 2020. It took me 12 years to write this book. I started it way back in January of 2009 while I was still living in Vancouver, BC. I put it down more than once, picked it back up, put it down again, picked it back up. And it wasn't until a back injury in 2014 where I was looking for something to occupy my mind while I laid on the couch for a period of eight months. I started working on this book. I started undoing a lot of mistakes I had made when I first started writing it. Over the course of six years, I was able to tweak, write, and rewrite second story work into something I'm proud to call my debut novel. Every week I'll bring you a new episode featuring pages from second story work. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Second Story Work, written by Josh Sobalski, narrated by Josh Sobalski, published in arrangement with Westray Reads, Second Story Work, copyright 2017 by Josh Sobalski. Chapter 1, September 28, 2009. Derek Searson pulled his mask over his long brown hair and tucked his heavy beard inside, he adjusted the eye holes and leaned back against the cold brick wall in the alleyway next to the Renfrew post office. His three accomplices' voices chattered on his walkie to let him know that they were in position as well. Their plan was to rob the armored truck that would be pulling up to the bank in just a few moments. Derek's three accomplices were his roommates, Hecky, Messy, and Arlove. They shared a house together in a posh Vancouver neighborhood but on this day, they were on the other side of Canada committing a felony. Derek leaned against the wall for what felt to him like an eternity. In reality, it was just six minutes. He was early, and he was nervous. He didn't have ice in his veins like Messi. Messi had been in combat. Derek had been in classrooms. This was new for him. At 11.01 a.m., Hecky whispered into his walkie, They're here. Derek muted his walkie and began to creep down the alley towards Raglan Street. At the end of the alley, police sirens began to ring out. He peeked around the corner and spotted two cruisers speeding down Raglan Street. The police sped towards the truck that Derek and his accomplices were targeting. Fuck, someone spotted me, he thought. He took a step back and cocked his gun. The police continued to speed towards the bank. They weren't slowing down. They sped through the intersection, past the alleyway Derek was standing in. The police created a distraction to onlookers. Amongst the chaos, the tin can pulled up in front of the bank and an armed guard exited the passenger side. He walked around the armored truck and opened the back door to walk inside. Derek stayed perfectly still, out of sight in the shadows of the alley. Moments later, the guard opened the back door and stepped outside. He was pushing a dolly cart stacked with bags of cash. Derek watched his accomplice, Messi, mask up and exit the getaway car that was parked three cars back from the armored truck. Messi stayed low and crept toward the guard. Derek took his cue and snuck onto Raglan Street, using the parked cars to shield himself. He popped his head out and saw Messi moving towards the guard. As the guard lifted the cart onto the sidewalk, Messi jumped out of hiding and maced him in the face. The guard reached for his eyes and released the cart into Messi's waiting arms. Derek peeked his head out to see if the truck's driver was aware of what just happened. He was reading the paper. Messi grabbed both the cart and the guard and pulled them behind the truck out of the driver's view. 
Derek darted across the street through traffic to the back of the armored truck. He crouched down beside Messi, who was holding the armed guard to the ground. The second accomplice, Hecky, pulled the getaway car out of his parking spot and drove over to Messi and Derek. He parked in the armored truck's blind spot and opened the front passenger door. Derek and his crew drew stares from curious onlookers as Derek tossed the money into the car and shut the door. The armed guard grabbed his gun and took hold of Messi's foot. Derek saw the guard at the last second and hit him in the face with his gun. Several of the onlookers screamed as the guard's blood splatter filled the air. Derek opened the back door of the getaway car and they jumped inside. Go, 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 yelled Derek. Hecky eased on the gas and made a right turn onto Renfrew Avenue. Derek could see that the truck driver was still reading the paper, oblivious to what just happened. Hecky raced down Renfrew Avenue and passed cross streets Argyle, Lockheel, and Boncher Avenue. He then passed a high school where students were leaving early for lunch. They were doing 120 kilometers an hour in a 40 kilometer an hour zone. Hecky raced onto Ross Avenue, hopped the curb, and flew through the gates that blocked the Millennium Walking Trail. He began to decelerate as he and the boys neared their switch car. They nearly lost control of the car on the loose gravel. Hecky fought to regain control as the car fishtailed. Derek could see the switch car in the distance and his third accomplice standing beside it. It was our love. He was masked up and ready to go. Hecky raced to the switch car and skidded to a stop right next to it. He popped the trunk for Messi and Derek to retrieve two cans of gas. Arlov transferred the money from one car to the other while Derek and Messi doused the getaway car in gas. Derek lit a book of matches and the three other boys watched from a distance as Derek threw the matches into the car and ran. The gas ignited as Derek jumped into the driver's seat of the switch car. He floored it blowing both stop signs on Lisgar Avenue before turning left onto the road out of town. A dark sea of smothering smoke filtered into the sky, covering the tiny town of Renfrew. The matches and the gas had torched their getaway car. Chapter 2 October 4th, 2009 There it is. There it is lined up perfectly. Lined up for him on a filthy glass coffee table in his seedy rundown motel. There it is lined up like little white soldiers saluting the man in charge. Derek Searsant is not in charge. He's a soldier too, and he's being run into the ground by what is on the table. The soldiers are in charge, and they have been for a while. The soldiers have been running him for the past two years. They've run him into the ground, to rock bottom, and he's let them. His home, his life, even his diet, all of it is tainted and gone. The little white soldiers have taken his morals, his convictions, and left him a shell of what he was. He has undergone a physical and psychological transformation that has left him unrecognizable. No longer is he the lean, clean-cut preppy kid with piercing blue eyes who left home in chase of a dream. He's become a tanned, muscular, tattooed monster with shoulder-length whiskey-colored hair and a beard fit for a caveman. His mariner blue eyes have been left sunken, emotionless, and beady. Derek Searsant is 24 years old, and he has nothing. Nothing but money and his crew. Nothing inside of him but cocaine, beer, and Doritos. He holds up his hand to shade his eyes from the morning light piercing through the torn motel curtains. It's 6 a.m., and he's been at it for too long, and he's not stopping. He rails more racket. 
sits back on his unmade bed, and kicks off his shoes to let his feet breathe. He's lost his sense of smell from too much junk, but he knows they stink. He loves high tops and ball caps, and usually pairs them with jeans and a t-shirt. He's the kind of man you'd notice on the street. His wrestler-sized shoulders draw stares, but his clothes make him less memorable. Derek sits back on his bed and reflects on how the last two weeks of running have been a microcosm of his existence. He's run from everything in his life. He's burned money and friends. If you want to create separation, you got to burn bridges. Derek has had to create and improvise without any help. No friend wants a cokehead sleeping in their living room, especially one that has heat on his tail and a cokehead for a sidekick. Lucky for Derek, he doesn't need a place to crash. He's the richest man no one knows about. He leans forward and breaks off another line with his credit card. Back to it he goes. There it is. There it is in a perfect little line. He fills his nose through his $50 tutor. It's put him where he is, holed up, scared, and struggling to survive. He's using a 50 because he and his boys are flushed with cash that they can't spend. It would bring heat to their door if they did. Up, up, up his nose. Up his nose, their money goes. Up his nose and in his head. What a rush. The adrenaline hits him and he feels it immediately. He'd be ready to take on the world if he could take on the day. For him, the kick feels the same as it did earlier in the kitchen, off the coffee table before that, or off the glove box in the car before that. That feeling hits hard, and Derek feels fantastic. He'll feel good for the next 20 minutes or so. He's done more today than ever before. He started the day with an eight, and then Messi showed up with another ball. Derek takes another bump, and his mind begins to wonder about all the time and money he's let dope and women take from him. Drugs have become too easy to get in Canada. Messi and Derek rolled into Canmore, and within an hour of arriving, they were bumping out lines in the bathroom. Derek's three and a half grams are nearly done, and it's early yet. He is startled by a loud knock outside the bathroom. He knows who's outside the door. He can hear the dog tags bouncing off the wood of the door. Seconds later, it swings open, and there stands Yoshi Messiah, or Messi, as he likes to be called. He steps into the bathroom and smiles a mouthful of perfectly carved out, dazzling white teeth. His glossy brown eyes lock with Derek's. He's fucked. Messi is 27, and much like Derek, he's a lost soul. Messi is lost for reasons that are similar to Derek's. They met four years ago in college and quickly realized that they were much the same. Messi's lost, as is Derek. Messi's fucked up, Derek too. Messi admits he points his finger at society and God for his problems. Ditto for Derek. They don't feel accountable for their actions. Helicopter parenting will raise an entitled child, and entitled children make shitty adults. Derek and Messi are shitty as they come. Messi grew up as the only brown kid in a very white area of Canada. His parents moved to Pembroke when he was five, and he spent his entire life standing out in a room. He spent two years in Afghanistan, but he wasn't welcome back. He can use a gun, but he's always been shitty at taking orders, especially when the order is to kill other brown people. Messi stands in the bathroom doorway in his pink dress shirt and sweater vest combo. He's built like a bull neck brick shithouse. Messi's acorn-colored eyes are bloodshot, and his curly black hair has a layer of grease on it. He hasn't showered in days. His jeans have white powder on them from his daily activities, and he has beer dripping from his chiseled jaw. Jesus Christ, Messi, try getting some of that shit in your nose, said Derek. I had it spill, replied Messi. Derek looked Messi up and down. 
Why are you dressed so nice? Messi replied, I decided earlier that I wanted to dress up to meet our dealer. Derek nodded his head. Oh, I thought maybe you wanted to be buried in that. Messi laughed and walked over to the couch and had a seat. Derek followed. Messi stretched out his six foot four frame and took a sip of beer. He's much lighter these days than he once was. A cocaine diet will shed the pounds faster than anything JC can sell you. Messi patiently waited his turn with the tutor as sweat rained down from beneath his ball cap. He grinned at Derek. He was high. Why would I want to dress in what I want to be buried in? Asked Messi. I don't know, bro. I thought maybe it was some military shit, replied Derek. Messi smirked and pointed at Derek. I think you've done enough. He stood up, walked over to Derek and playfully pushed him out of the way. Derek stood up and turned the makeshift tutor over to Messi. He tried to walk to the cooler located on the other side of the room. Everything moved quickly for him. The faster he moved, the more he felt like a sprinter closing in on the last few meters of a race. His finish line was an MGD. With his fingers gripped onto the lid of the cooler, Derek wrestled it open, dunked his hand into the ice water, and grabbed onto a beer. The cold struck his skin and sent a shiver down his spine. His heart accelerated. Grabbing his chest in pain, he pulled his hand out of the cold and paused. After composing himself, he stood to his feet and took a seat on the couch in the living room. Derek took a sip of the beer. Flavorless. His senses were shutting down. He tasted and he felt nothing. It had been far too long that he'd felt nothing. Numbness had become one of the few feelings that he could remember. It had consumed him and made him into a zombie. And much like The Walking Dead, he's wandered aimlessly about, always numb and feeling nothing. Nothing is what he's amounted to. Nothing is what he's worth. Nothing feels real. And for Derek, everything needs to change. Mistakes have been made. The kind he can't turn his back on. The haunting kind of mistakes. These two men, Messi and Derek, have left a path of destruction the last two years. Choices have been made, and they were usually the wrong ones. Derek's friends call him Sarge because of his last name. Sierzant means sergeant in Polish. The irony is not lost on him. He and Messi are on the run, and every cop in Canada is on the lookout for a six-foot, 208-pound frame. They just don't know who he is or where to find him. In the last 18 months, Derek has gained over 35 pounds. His once oversized hoodies now cling tightly to his shredded biceps. His family wouldn't recognize him if they had to pick him out of a police lineup or the morgue, neither of which are out of the realm of possibility. Derek's parents came to Renfrew, Ontario from Warsaw, Poland. His father, Peter, owned a large electrical business and the family were firmly entrenched in the middle class. His mother, Lena, was a stay-at-home mom. His relationship with his parents was typical for a small-town family. Dinner at 5.30 p.m., camping in the summer, and mass every Sunday. In his early teens, Derek rebelled. Church became repulsive, camping was annoying, and dinner at 5.30 turned into him and his buddies going to McDonald's after hotboxing his car. His father, Peter, used to tell him stories about a Polish thief named Zagadka. Zagadka was a legendary second-story man, car thief, and bank robber who was never caught or identified. Peter used to say that the joke in Germany was to visit Poland because your car was already there. As Derek became older, he became tired of Peter's tall tales. At 12 years old, Derek began dating Christy. They met in school and fell in love. She was a wasp-waisted beauty with glossy tan skin and auburn hair that crashed over her shoulders. Her bouncy personality always had Derek's attention. 
They were their schools, Romeo and Juliet. At 16, Derek moved out of his parents' home to play hockey and live with his billet family. After his hockey career ended, he moved into a rundown apartment in Ottawa with Christy. For the next two years, he bounced from job to job, often bouncing, and place to place, following her until they ended up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Thunder Bay was a blue-collar town in northern Ontario, located hours from any other major city. Derek loved it. Christy went to Lakehead University, and Derek enrolled in film school. They continued to date well into college. Derek pauses for a moment and thinks back to all the time he spent regretting women he's been with and pining for a woman he's never met. Women have always appreciated his sensitive side and his willingness to be open. He isn't a bad person. He just does bad things. Messi and Derek didn't meet until college. Despite growing up in nearby towns, they met when they were paired up on the same team in their recreational hockey league. Messi went to school for journalism after his military stint. He was a guy that could entertain a table at the bar with his wild stories. He and Derek understood one another. They rejected small town life to chase crazy dreams. They were discovering the way they saw the world. They knew they had a different point of view than everyone else. They were both staunchly opposed to war and the drug war. They liked freedom and they hated the idea of tyranny and force. Derek had many detractors when he chose to enroll in film school. Everyone doubted his decision and he intended to make the doubters eat crow. His goal was to score films. He was a very talented guitarist and singer, and he knew his future lay in music. That was Derek's endgame. He didn't care what he did to get on a film set. He just wanted to be a part of the process, and he wanted to get paid to do it. December 2007. Derek walked into Scuttlebutt's bar for his final night as a college student. He'd graduated, and he was gone. He sat at a table with two men to whom he'd become attached at the hip. The first man was Ryan Ludhani. Ryan was from Winnipeg. He and Derek had become buddies instantly. Ryan, or our love as he liked to be called, was one of the most unique people Derek had ever met. He was the conscience of their group, the stabilizing force that had kept them all together. He was 5'11", husky, and of indigenous descent. He kept his scraggly hair long and wore a thick caveman beard. He wasn't really interested in women, which actually helped him get women. He aspired to work as a director of photography, and he hoped to one day film a documentary about his parents' struggle growing up in northern Manitoba on a reserve. The other gent at the table was Riley Heckman, often referred to as Hecky. He was the shortest member of the group, standing at about five foot nine. He had short red hair that was nearly shaved off and skin as white as a bedsheet. He always kept himself tidy and well-groomed. He was the anti-Arlove in both personality and appearance. Like Messi, he was the son of a cop. He was also the brains of the group, the most driven and the best communicator. Hecky was the only one of the boys who grew up in northern Ontario. He hoped to be a film director one day. Arlove, Hecky, and Derek had spent two years cutting their teeth in every aspect of the film industry. They had big dreams and big plans. Messi joined the three boys later in the evening. His hands were cut and he had a black eye. The hell happened to you? asked Arlove. I found the wife fucking some clown, replied Messi. The three boys looked at each other confused. Did, did you hit her? asked Derek. No, you dummies. I hit the guy she was banging. Pour me a pint. Messi sat down with the boys in the corner booth. They spoke loudly above the Sean Paul mixes that were echoed throughout the poorly lit bar. Where are you going next week, Sarge? asked Messi. Shouldn't you be talking about your feelings? asked Derek. 
I let my fist talk out my feelings with that dude's face. Messi sipped his beer and turned back to Derek. Where are you going next week? Not really sure. Home, I guess, said Derek, without conviction. Home was his only option. It meant making tape in a plant until he figured it out. Nothing there for either of us, remarked Messi. Derek knew that, but money was tight, and he dreaded asking his parents for more after they'd helped him through school. His only other option was to go further in debt, but he didn't want to do that to just fulfill his dream of moving to Vancouver. Derek studied Arlov's rainbow-colored drink. Arlov, you gotta stop drinking joke liquor. Well, it's your opinion, Sarge, replied Arlov. My opinion carries weight. You know what my dad used to say about opinions, asked Hecky. I'll bet it was racist, shouted Messi. Opinions are like dicks. Only men should have them, and women should shut up and admire them. Jesus Christ, shouted Derek. Your dad's the worst. Ah, he's a nice guy. You just have to look at him as a whole, said Hecky in defense of his father. Yeah, an asshole, shouted Derek. Hecky laughed off the ribs and took a sip of beer. Well, I guess this is as good a time as any to tell you that I'm moving to Whistler. Really? asked Derek. Yeah, man, he answered. Dad got hired to work security for the Olympics, so we're moving to Squamish when I wrap up here. Lucky bastard, thought Derek. Here he was packing up to move back to Renfrew with Christy, and all of his job applications were to factories, while Hecky talked about joining the film union and starting his career. After the bar, Messi walked to Derek's apartment, and they cracked open two beers in his living room. I spoke to my folks, said Messi. I'm going back to Pembroke. Derek took a sip of his fresh beer. What'd you say to them? I said I'd go home. Maybe I'd go be a cop. What'd you say to yours? I told my dad if he forced me to go home, I was going to oversee the production and distribution of knees to his groin. Messi laughed. What about Christy? He asked. Derek thought for a moment. Christy wants me to postpone going west so she can start work. Brutal, Messi replied. Yeah, it's not ideal. Messi cut in. Do you ever worry about her breaking it off again? I mean, yeah, Derek sighed. But things were different then. True, replied Messi as he reached into his pocket and pulled out an eight ball of cocaine. He soft-tossed it on the coffee table in the middle of the room and looked at Derek. You want to blast off? What the fuck? asked Derek. Six seconds ago, you were saying you might go be a cop? No, that was a lie. Derek continued. Jesus, dude, you can't be getting into that shit. Derek stood up and walked over to the kitchen and poured himself a drink. He pulled up a folding chair beside the couch. You've got the most addictive personality I've ever seen. Didn't you get bounced from the force for having a pill problem? I didn't have the problem. They had the problem. Messi shot back. Derek took his shot and grinned. Yeah, with you doing too many fucking pills. At sunrise, they stumbled down the street to Subway. Messi was beaten, but he remained hopeful as he sat in a booth eating a breakfast sandwich. I'm going west, Sarge. Derek looked up from his meal. Did you just decide that now? What's holding me back? I might as well join Hecky out there. Maybe I'll get some security work with his dad or some new shit or something. The following day, Derek met up with Christy at the Prospector. The restaurant looked like an old-fashioned New York steakhouse. Derek admired the craftsmanship of the interior as he and Christy were led to a back booth. Christy was happy and excited to be moving home. Shortly after dinner, they were enjoying cheesecake when Christy began to talk about Messi. You know, I'm not surprised Jess did that to him. What makes you say that? Derek wondered. She was very insecure. Selfish. I never noticed that, short of her being rude and inconsiderate. After the meal, they left the restaurant and began walking to Derek's car. Christy became silent and withdrawn. She'd yet to speak since they talked about Jess and Messi. 
Derek knew something was up. Are you okay? Christy looked at him and stopped walking. He stopped alongside her. Tears began to fall from her face onto the sidewalk below. Derek, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Derek looked at her, confused. She continued. The accumulation of school ending and the past few events in our life have made me realize that this isn't going to work out forever. Derek squinted and stepped back from Christy. You mean us? Christy wiped the tears from her eyes with the back of her hands. I want things from life, you want things from life, and our futures just don't match. Yes, they do, Derek replied. Derek, stop. Christy took a breath. He turned away from her and rubbed his head. She continued. I didn't want to come here, but it was the only place for both of us. Derek turned back to face her. She continued. I don't want to force you to move home because it suits me. A young couple walking hand in hand walked past Derek and Christy, interrupting their conversation. Derek watched for them to step out of earshot. What about what I want? What do you want, Derek? You, replied Derek, pointing to Christy with his right hand. We're never going to keep each other happy. No matter what we do, we'll never be fulfilled. We'll make it work, replied Derek in a certain tone. Derek, I don't want to make it work. Christy paused and wiped more tears from her face with her sleeves. You shouldn't want that either. My career and all that shit will always come second, and that's fine, said Derek. Derek, we only get one shot at this life, and I don't want you to spend it wondering what might have been. Derek began to cry. He hid the tears by putting his hands on his forehead. Christy, I don't care. I'll shoot weddings if I have to. Christy gestured wildly with her hands. You say that now, but I'm saving us a lot of wasted years. You're throwing us away, Derek shot back. Derek, I did this to you before, and I'm doing it again. It would really be better if you never got tangled up with me ever again. Derek paused and looked at Christy. She had tears in her eyes, and he began to crumble. That's it for this week's episode of Second Story Work. Thanks so much for joining. I'm Josh Sabalski. We'll see you next week with a new episode. Take care.